So let's continue in 1 Peter. So we're in chapter 2 today, and this text is a transition text. There's sort of two parts to, to 1 Peter. I mean, it's just one, one solid letter that's not necessarily... Um, that, that Peter stops and then writes later, uh, but there's a transition that happens in our text today, which is going to be 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And that transition is something that's common in New Testament letters. We see this in a lot of Paul's letters where he starts out with a lot of theology. He talks a lot of doctrine. He talks about um, you know, the gospel predominantly and what the gospel means for us, and then sort of transitions into the application of that. And that's what we see in 1 Peter. We've talked a lot about the gospel in the first two, first well, chapter and a few verses, and now we're going to transition to some really practical application. And that practical application is one of the things I love about 1 Peter. It's what drew me to preaching 1 Peter for Redemption Church uh, in 2020. The application, though, is going to be very demanding. 1 Peter is, let's say, it's, it's a book for those who are ready to embrace the idea of becoming mature disciples of Christ. This is not going to be light, easy, fluffy application that we're getting into. Some of it's going to be very hard. Um, namely, he gets a lot into submission and suffering. And submission and suffering are very difficult subjects for us to embrace, uh, especially in, you know, in the 21st century as these strong individualistic kind of people in, in America. We like to set our own course. We don't like to submit to anybody. We don't bow down to anybody. And Peter is going to tell us, but if you want to be a Christ follower, then submission is a way of life. And along with that, uh, he prepares us to expect suffering. There's a very popular version of the gospel. It's a, it's a false gospel. It's an inaccurate representation of the true gospel called the prosperity gospel that says if you follow Jesus, everything will go well for you. You'll experience health, wealth, and happiness. And uh, that flies in the face of everything that we're going to see in the rest of 1 Peter. And so I want to prepare you. Uh, if you are looking uh, to Jesus as, as somebody that hopefully is just going to add positive things to your life, he's going to make everything go well, then first, the rest of 1 Peter might be a hard pill to swallow, but it's an important book for us to look at and to study. And so we'll get into this. We'll get into uh, what 1 what Peter, Peter teaches us about growing into maturity, which is what we looked at last week, that we're called to grow into maturity. We're called to grow up as Christians and not be immature Christians forever. And where we ended last weekend was that Peter was telling us that God has, has chosen Christians to be uh, a royal priesthood, a, a nation that, that glorifies him, a, a chosen race of people, that he's called Christians to be this special part of his plan in building his kingdom. And alongside Jesus, who's our cornerstone, he's, he's building his kingdom through us who are living stones alongside of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That, there's, a, there's a lot of, let's say, privilege, if I can use a, a, a politically loaded word right now, there's a lot of privilege implied in that. We're part of God's kingdom. We're his chosen people. We're the special people of God. And then immediately Peter's going to transition to, and because of that, you should be like Jesus, who came to earth with, let's say, all of the privilege of eternity, 
Uh, he had it all. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. He, he helped form and create the earth. He's Jesus, part of the, the triune deity that created this universe. And he laid all of that down and put it aside so that he could serve. That's why Mark 10, 45 tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others. And that's the mentality that Peter calls us to in the rest of this letter. Yes, we have this incredible place in God's plan, and he wants us to use that to submit ourselves to others in order to build his kingdom and to glorify him. So let's look at our text together, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Okay, so chapter 1 in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Here's the gospel. Here's what it means for us. Here's who we are in Christ. And then this is, I think, the most important two verses of the entire book. And he calls, he calls us to two things, abstain from the sin, sinful desires that wage war against the soul, and then conduct ourselves in a way that glorifies God and draws others to him. And so that's the two things that I want to talk about. The first thing you'll see on your handout, strangers, and that's the language that we're using in this sermon series, that we're called to be strangers on the earth, we're called to be different, we're called to be separate from the world around us. This is not our eternal home. Uh, but we are called to live as strangers on this earth. Strangers fight back against the sinful desires that fight against our souls. Strangers fight back against the sinful desires that fight against our souls. There's some things that we need to understand about sin in order to understand this point that Peter's making here in this letter. The first is this, that sin destroys. Sin is not our friend. Sin does not come to make our life better. Sin does, does not come to improve our existence on the earth. Sin destroys. It always destroys. It always brings destruction. That's why the famous Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You are in a battle against sin. It's been said many times that sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Sin is our enemy. It's one of the greatest enemies that all human beings have in common. Sin and death are the great enemies of every human being who has ever existed. Where does sin come from? The Bible tells us where sin comes from. Because we live in a world that has this idea that all, all evil doesn't come from human beings because human beings are inherently good, but somehow evil comes from the systems of the world that force evil into the hearts of human beings. And the Bible tells the story the other way around, that, that sin comes from inside the human heart, that we are born as, as sinful beings, and that because of that, evil systems are created. James 4 makes this explicit. James 4 verses 1 and 2 says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. James answers this question, where does sin come from? The, the people that he's writing to might, may have asked this question. 
Why is it that we can't seem to get along? Why is it that we do things? I mean, I think on, on some level, we all ask that question. Why do I do these things that I generally think are not good things? James answers the question. It comes from the passions that wage war within you. You have within you the, you have within you the seeds of every evil desire in existence. Any single human being is capable of any evil that has ever been done. Now, those seeds don't give birth in every human heart the same way, but they're within us. That's because we have what the Bible describes as a sinful nature. It's part of who we are. We're born this way, and we come into this world. We see, I mean, if you've ever raised toddlers, this is just abundantly clear. <laughs> toddlers display what the Bible tells us is true. They don't, have to, they don't have to be taught how to disobey. They don't have to be taught how to do wrong things. It's inherent. It, it comes to them quite naturally. What they have to be taught is how to wage war against those desires. We as human beings have to be taught how, how to handle those desires when they come up. What do we do when, what are we supposed to do when we get so mad that we want to hit somebody? That's one of the first things that you have to teach children. What are, we, what are we supposed to do whenever mom or dad says that we need to go clean up our room and it's the last thing that we want to do? We're, we have to be taught how to wage war, how to fight against these sinful desires. And that's because, and this is the next thing you'll see on the handout, the flesh is a resident enemy in the life of every believer. Before you become a Christ follower, that battle, the, the, the presence of sinful desires is not nearly as relevant as it is after you become a Christ follower. Once you become a Christ follower, you are called to wage war against those desires. And you find out very quickly that your enemy in that war is your own flesh. What the Bible describes as the flesh is our sinful nature. And that doesn't necessarily mean like the cells that, that make up our body, but the, that innate sinful desire, that sinful nature that is within all of us is referred to oftentimes in the Bible as the flesh. I want to look, uh, we'll look at where Paul talks about this in, in Romans 7 and 8. But as I was, I was thinking about this enemy that we have, the flesh, you know, Kim and I have been watching the Netflix series, The Last Kingdom. It's a, it's a really cool show based in, I think, like the 800s or 900s. And it's this ongoing battle between the Saxons and the Danes for, for land and for power and control. And uh, there's some, some characters in that, in that story that kind of move, the, in that show that kind of move the story along. One of the characters that if you watch the show, The Last Kingdom, you quickly start to hate is this guy named Ethelwald. Ethelwald, uh, for, for some reason, was in line to be king uh, over this kingdom that they're fighting for, and he was bumped out of line by somebody else. That's basically what you need to know. But he doesn't accept the fact that, he's that he was once going to be king and no longer in line to become king. And so he, he becomes this really despicable character in the show. And, and he's always conniving and, and putting together plans to sort of undo those who are in charge. And he's, he becomes the enemy of, of the new king on the throne. And that's kind of like the flesh. Our flesh, when we're born, our flesh is like, this is great. 
I'm, I'm destined for the throne. Our flesh is in control. I get to rule this kingdom that is this human life, right? And then as believers, Christ comes in and he says, no, 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 this is my throne flesh. You step aside. But our flesh doesn't go away willingly. Our flesh doesn't say, oh, okay, well, Jesus wants to be king uh, in this person's life, so I'll just step aside. Now, he becomes this pest. The flesh becomes this enemy that is constantly trying to dethrone the king, that's constantly fighting against. And you, you quickly learn to hate the flesh. The flesh is the enemy of every good thing that God is doing in your life. Well, spoiler alert, and it's not the main thing that happens in the show. So if you haven't watched the show, there's... And, and, and you decide to watch it, there's plenty of good things that you can still enjoy uh, even knowing this. In fact, you'll probably forget that I even said this by the time you get to the season where this happens. But Ethelwald is eventually killed. But what's interesting about, I got to tell you just a, a quick story that happens in the show. So Ethelwald kills this guy named Ragna. Ragna is one of the Danes and he's He's, he's kind of like uh, an, an adopted brother or a half-brother or something of the main show, uh, or the main star of the show, Uhtred. Okay, so Ethelwald, this guy who represents the flesh in my uh, illustration here, he kills, uh, kills Ragna in, in, in just cold-blooded murder. He kills him. And then Uhtred wants to avenge that killing. But there's something really cool in their worldview, in their worldview that when you die, you go to this place that's, I guess, sort of like what we would understand as purgatory. You're in this holding place where you don't get to go to eternal life yet. The only way to move from that holding place into eternal life when you've been murdered in that way is that some of your blood is preserved. This is weird, okay? But, but, but follow me, and if I lose you, I think I'll pick you back up at the end. Some of your blood has to be held onto. So they keep Ragna's blood. Now the person who murdered him, Ethelwald, has to be killed with Ragna's blood. And so there's this incredible scene where Uhtred, the star of the show, he, he gets Ethelwald and he's ready to kill him. And he takes this pouch of his friend Ragna's blood and he stabs him right through that pouch. And it's the blood that kills Ethelwald and sets Ragna free. What's really, and as I'm watching this, I'm like, this is the story of the gospel. Because it's sin that killed Jesus, but it's Jesus' blood that kills sin. And in our battle against the flesh, in our battle against the sinful nature, the only way to win, the only way to kill our flesh is through the blood of Jesus. And the thing that, that caused him to die eventually is killed by the blood that was created when it caused him to die. Jesus' blood redeems us. Jesus' blood makes it possible to eventually have victory over the flesh. We call that glorification. There's coming a day when eventually Jesus will eradicate the problem of the sin nature. But until that day, until we're in glory with him, we're in this battle where the flesh is trying to destroy us. And I know that seems morbid. That's a, that's a, a negative view of, of life. But it's an accurate and biblical view, and we have to embrace that and understand that. That's why Paul says in Romans 7 and 8, I, want, I said I wanted to, to share this. I'm just going to read this. This won't be on the screen. It's too long. Uh, I think you, you, we'll do best if I just read and you try to follow along as I read Romans 7, 18 through 25. Paul said, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. 
For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law, when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am, Paul says. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. The apostle Paul himself lived out his, the, the rest of his life after encountering Christ in this war, in this battle between flesh and spirit in this battle between this part of us that desires to do all of the wrong things, and yet this life that God has infused into us through the presence of His Holy Spirit that wants to live for and glorify God. And that's the war that we're in. That's the battle that we fight. And that's what every Christian needs to be prepared to do, is to fight against, to wage war against the sinful nature. That's why Peter calls us to this when he said, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. We're in a war. We're in a battle. We're in a battle to live for and glorify God with our lives. Are you going to live according to the sinful desires that are within you? Are you going to live according to the Spirit of God that is within you? That's a daily, that's a moment-by-moment battle. Paul would go on in a few verses later in Romans 8, picking up in verse 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And so Paul is, is speaking to the fact that there's a transition that happens in the life of believer. Uh, once you come to Christ and receive salvation, you're no longer defined by your flesh. You're now defined by the Spirit of God that lives within you. Yet there's this ongoing choice that you make to live according to one of those two natures. He says, now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. So we're in this transition period. We're born into this world just spiritually dead, just knowing nothing but the sin nature. And then we're born again when the Spirit of God comes into us, and yet these two natures sort of coincide for a while until we live out the rest of our lives here on earth. And then one day, the, the flesh itself will be renewed and will no longer be at war with the Spirit, but will be in cooperation with the Spirit. Until that day, abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. That's what Christians are called to. Until that day, 1 Peter chapter 2, 11. Let me read it one more time before we move on to the next point. 
Dear friends, I urge you as strangers in excess to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. I would encourage you as a way of application to, to be specific in waging the war back against the sinful nature, pushing back, fighting back against the things that are waging war against you. In fact, I would encourage you to name at least one sinful desire that you struggle with regularly. Whatever that might be, uh, that can be specific to you. But is there, I'm sure if you've been walking with Christ, you can name at least one thing that is just an ongoing battle for you, something that you struggle with uh, regularly, if not daily. Name it and, 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 and begin to develop a plan. How are you going to fight back against that sinful desire? Some suggestions I would make. First of all, we all need confession and accountability. If you're, if you're going to win in the fight against the sinful desires that are waging war against your soul, you need to have somebody that you're confessing those sins to and who's holding you accountable on a regular basis. And then you, between you and the Lord, you just need to have a plan for fighting against that. Identify the things that are tripping you up. Identify the things that are leading you into that sinful desire and then begin to wage war. John Piper preached a great sermon one time that he titled Make War, and it was all about fighting against sin. And he's, you just have to, it's, it's worth uh, go, going and doing a YouTube search and just, just put in John Piper Make War because uh, some clips from that sermon have been turned into these little, what's called sermon jams, where they kind of set it to music and, and sort of dramatize his words. But there's this really memorable line where he says something like, I hear so many Christians murmuring about the sin that lingers in their lives. He says, murmur, murmur, murmur. All I hear is murmuring. I hear so much murmuring and yet see so little war. And he challenges believers to make war against the sin that exists in our lives. And that's what I would encourage us to do. In a culture that strives for the acceptance of every dark desire and proclivity known to man. In a, in a world that just says, hey, what, whatever, it, whatever it is that you're drawn to, be true to yourself and embrace those desires. In a culture that, that in, the, in the name of being true to yourself says, just do whatever your heart wants to do. God seeks to rescue us from the inevitable self-destruction that that brings. The inevitable self-destruction of chasing after every desire that our sinful hearts can think of. And he calls us to fight against the sinful nature within us. To fight against those sinful desires. That's where life is found. Life is not found in just doing whatever your heart wants to do. That leads to death and destruction. Life is found in submitting to Christ and waging war against the sinful desires within us. All right. Next, on the handout, strangers live lives that bring God glory and draw others to him. There's two parts to this text. Push back, fight back, wage war against the sinful desires that are waging war against you. And now this, strangers live lives that bring God glory and draw others to him. Here's the mature mindset that Peter calls us to, that your fight against sin in your life is not just for your own benefit. When you engage in warfare against your sinful nature, it's not just for your own health and well-being. It's so that God would be glorified 
and that others would be drawn to him. It's for the glory of God and the good of others. That's, why we, that's part of the reason why we fight against those sinful desires. This is the mindset that Peter's going to call us to. He says in chapter 2, verse 12, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Gentiles just basically just means non-believers. So that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works <clears throat> Excuse me, and will glorify God on the day he visits. So conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. A couple things to point out here. He says, when, not if. When, not if. When they slander you as evildoers. It has always been the experience of Christians in this world that the non-believing world around us speaks poorly of us. They slander us. They lie about us. They misrepresent us. They attack us. It's when, it's not if. We need to be prepared for that. Peter wanted his, his hearers to know that it's normal to experience that type of opposition. And certainly that is the norm today. Christians, in, let's, I would say Christians in the 20th century in America had it better than almost all Christians throughout all of human history. They enjoyed a, a favor within a nation that was, that was very rare among the body of Christ throughout history. And as we see that uh, becoming further and further from our reality, as our culture turns on Christians and re refers to us as bigoted and, and hateful and, and all of the accusations that they bring against us, we need to be reminded that that has been the norm throughout Christian and church history. I want to speak especially uh, to any of our youth that might tune in and listen. You young people who are still in school and you're experiencing opposition from people around you because you're a Christian and you don't go along with and do the things that everybody else is doing or that they want you to do. And they, they make fun of you and ridicule you for that. I just want to tell you, you are in really good company. Did you, do you know that millions of Christians over the last 2,000 years have experienced similar opposition? And did you know that Jesus himself experienced that type of opposition? Nobody was more slandered and ridiculed than Jesus and falsely accused than Jesus. And when people say bad things about you or when people make fun of you or they, they tease you or give you a hard time because you're following Jesus, you need to know that he's right there with you. And he's proud of you and he's cheering you on. And, and you are in some of the best company because you are suffering for Christ. And I know, you know, you know, maybe people aren't threatening to kill us like they do in other countries and stuff for, for preaching the gospel, but it still hurts when people are saying bad things about you or when people turn against you because you're, you're a Christian. But Jesus is with you, and I want you to know that. I think back on some of the times, you know, I became a believer as a teenager, sort of a little bit later as a teenager, and some of my friends, in fact, one of my best friends, um, my best friend in high school, uh, just didn't understand that decision. None of my friends did. And some of them, some of them were very cool about it and didn't give me any grief. Others kind of made fun of me and they would say snarky things and, and want to ridicule me. Uh, but I would love to, to tell you the stories of how as the years passed, some of those people who most opposed my decision to follow Christ at some point would come back and they would want to know more. 
or some of them even became Christ followers. People who made fun of me as a teenager for following Christ would eventually see how awesome he is and become Christ followers themselves. And so hang in there. You never know. You never know when some of those friends might come back to you and say like, hey, I know you're a Christian, so you probably pray. Hey, I'm going through this. Or somebody in my family just you know, got diagnosed with cancer. Or we just lost somebody. Uh, would you pray for us? I had my, my best friend in high school, in fact, came back to me after we graduated and in tears asked me to share the gospel with him. It was, it was just one of the, one of the coolest moments uh, of that decade of my life was to get to share the gospel with a good friend who wanted to hear the good news of Jesus. So hang in there. You're not alone. You're in good company. Peter himself was very familiar with the slander and false accusations Christians are subject to in this world. He was, he was arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel. He himself uh, was imprisoned. And not long after writing these very words, not long after he wrote 1 Peter, would be falsely accused again, and this time would actually be executed for preaching the gospel. Executed, actually, uh, let me correct that, executed for crimes he did not commit. There's a, a commentator that wrote a, a, co- a commentary on 1 Peter, Edmund Clowney. I've been reading it as we've gone through this series. He said this. He said, Peter escaped the sword of Herod. That was his imprisonment in Jerusalem. But he would not escape the perverse hatred of Nero, who was the emperor who uh, persecuted Christians right after Peter wrote this letter and had Peter himself executed. But he goes on to say, this is what Edmund Clowney says, Yet in spite of pagan injustice, the impact of the Christian witness will not be lost in Peter's day or ours. The surrounding world will see the good deeds of the Christian community. They cannot avoid it, I would add, unless, of course, we fail to provide it. Even in the spite of persecution and perhaps even death, our witness is not lost in this world. When we suffer for Christ, that is a testimony to the gospel and to the people who need to hear it the most. History is full of stories of persecutors who turned and followed Christ. Paul himself, the the apostle who wrote the majority of the New Testament letters, was a persecutor of Christians until he met Jesus. Our witness is not lost we, we should not be afraid to suffer for Christ because that suffering may be the very thing that leads others to him. And at the very least, it glorifies God as we join G- Jesus himself in suffering for the gospel. Strangers live lives that bring glory to God, sometimes through our suffering, okay, always through our obedience, and draw others to him. That's what we're looking for, that our witness would lead to the eternal salvation of other people. That's Christian maturity. When you, when you begin to think beyond the, the benefits and the implications for holiness for yourself, and you begin to think, hey man, if I really take this Jesus thing serious, and if I'm, if I'm obedient to him, and if I'm willing to submit, as we're going to talk about in the next uh, couple of sermons, and if I'm willing to suffer, as we're going to talk about later in First Peter, then that brings glory to God and actually draws other people to him. And that, it, that is a transition that we all need to make in our, in our walk with Christ. It's, it's a part of growing into maturity, as was mentioned in last week's uh, passage, 
that we go from thinking about how this is going to impact me and we start thinking, how's it going to impact the world around me? Man, if I take this serious and I really begin to live for Christ and I, I get serious about doing what his word says, that's not only going to have an impact on my personal life, but it's going to glorify God and it's going to draw other people to him. And that's what Peter calls us to. And he calls us uh, to do some very difficult things. He calls us to have a, a, a view that displays a maturity well beyond what most of the Christians in our culture today are willing to embrace. I want to close with Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, very familiar verses where Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's let our light shine. Let's take the rest of this book, 1 Peter, very seriously. Let's be willing to embrace difficult commands. Let's be willing to go and do the hard things because we want our light to shine. We know that this world is dark and needs the light of Jesus. We know that, that God deserves to be glorified and that it's for the good of others when we live our lives for Jesus. And so let's do that. Let's be light. Let's provide the witness and the testimony to the gospel that this world needs to see. Our mission as a church is to declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. Well, let's declare it with our mouths. Let's speak boldly the gospel, but let's demonstrate it in how we live. Let's demonstrate it by embracing Christian maturity, by embracing discipleship, and be willing to submit and to suffer so that God would be glorified and that others would be drawn to him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we look to your word, and as we explore what it means to be mature Christian disciples, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts as we consider the areas of our lives where we need to fight back against these sinful desires, where we, we need to take serious that command to make war, to not allow sin to destroy and, and, and to come in and wreak havoc in our lives and to affect our witness and to affect our relationship and our experience with you and to affect the people around us in a negative way, but that we would fight back and that we would live lives that glorify you and draw others to you as well. Use us, make us light in this dark world. And I pray specifically for Redemption Church that we would be light in this community that you would use us to declare and demonstrate your plan of redemption, that the gospel would go forth through our lives individually and through us as a church, corporately and collectively. And God, I pray that wherever you want us to meet, uh, we know that a church is the people, not the building, um, but we also know the convenience and, and um, the stability of having a building, and we long for that. We long for or an opportunity to even grow the ministries that we're doing, to do more and to do different things that we can't do right now without a building. And so, God, if and when that's your will, I pray that you would lead and direct us to the right place so that we could meet regularly and glorify you and draw others to you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right, thanks for worshiping with us. Um, thank you. I also want to say thank you because this is the time where if we meet in person, we would receive the offering. And um, I just want to thank all of you who have continued to give and make uh, the ministry of Redemption Church not just, not just survive, but thrive through this time of pandemic. Thank you for your faithfulness. And uh, we love you and we're grateful for you guys. Let's worship together through one more song.